Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversation and great stories. I am your host, Brian Solomon. Now, this is the very, very, very first episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, my podcast, which I've been talking about for a really long time and toying in my head about whether or not to do one. And I finally broke down and decided to join the Parade of Wrestling podcasts. So before I do that, before I explain what this is all about, why I'm doing it, um, I just want to talk a little bit about who I am, first and foremost, because I think that's kind of important, because I do not flatter myself to believe that the average person who listens to wrestling podcasts knows everything about me and who I am. So I'm going to explain that a little bit before I begin. So um, I think really... um, Where I first got super encouraged to do this and and put my foot out there and create a podcast was uh, from my very recent co-hosting, guest co-hosting appearance on Brian Last 605 Super Podcast. So a lot of people may have heard me on that. Um, It went better than I ever would have expected, and it, it sort of pushed me in the direction of what I had been toying with already doing for years, which is starting my own podcast. People seem to, uh, for some inexplicable reason, um, enjoy listening to me talk about wrestling. So I thought, hey, what the hell? Why don't I why don't I give it a shot? Why don't I do it? So first of all, I have to thank and I will continue to thank Arcadian Vanguard and Brian Last for giving me a chance to actually do this on a platform that will hopefully reach a lot of people. So I'm grateful for that. Um, But a little background on who I am, first of all. So um, what I do these days is a little different in the wrestling business from what I did years ago. So really my initial claim to what you would vaguely refer to as fame would be my years working for WWE. So for 2000. From 2000 to 2007, I was a staff writer and an editor uh, in various editorial positions at WWE's publications department. I was the managing editor and senior editor of WWE Magazine and other magazines like SmackDown Magazine, which I launched and shepherded through its entire run. Um, And a a lot of the special edition magazines. Uh, I wrote for WWE.com. I was... uh, pretty much a fixture in the magazines for years. And I was first able to really reach an audience as a writer of wrestling material um, by doing that. You know, I'd been a wrestling fan from when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn and I always wanted to write about wrestling, you know? So like a lot of people, I started writing about wrestling, even in school and in the college paper, doing a wrestling column and things like that. And uh, for years I'd been sort of dreaming about breaking into you know, actually writing about wrestling professionally. And I, and I got my chance in 2000 to do that. I did it for a number of years. Um, however, in the years since then, I've also kind of branched out into some other things. Um, I currently write for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I'm a regular staff writer there, and I have been a regular staffer for the past couple of years, but I've written on and off for PWI going all the way back to 2007 when I first left WWE. And that'll actually tie in a little bit to who my first guest is here today on this podcast. 
Um, so I do that. I also happen to write for another wrestling magazine. I'm very lucky. Another wrestling magazine called Inside the Ropes, um, which um, I have been doing now, I would say for a little over a year. So I, I'm really privileged to be able to keep writing about wrestling. I've also written a number of books about pro wrestling. When I worked at WWE, I wrote the book WWE Legends. That was something that I pitched while I was there and miraculously got through the, the entire vetting process and made it to press. Um, I've also written a book called Pro Wrestling FAQ, and I am currently on the verge of publishing my third book about wrestling, which is a biography of the original Sheik called Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Uh, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about this podcast and what it's going to be. So uh, my idea to do a wrestling podcast is really to focus on my great love, which is old school wrestling. Um, I continue to watch current wrestling, contemporary wrestling. I enjoy a lot of it. Uh, but my comfort zone will always be the old school stuff. And I will always... Um, gravitate towards that it's just where my where my heart is and not just the stuff that i grew up with as a fan although i do love that uh, but also even just the 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 recesses of wrestling history going back way way before my time i've always been fascinated with learning as much as i could about it talked a little bit about that on the 605 when i was on there so i had this idea not that i i don't like to talk about contemporary wrestling but there's certainly Many, many podcasts out there that are doing that now. So I didn't want to just be another one of those. So I thought I would focus on the old school stuff. And so what we'll do here from week to week is we're going to have conversations about old school wrestling. And the topics of those conversations are going to be dependent on who the guest is. So um, whatever that person is an expert on or has a great love of or maybe has some experience with, that will be our topic. And uh, I'm going to try to make it a, a mix, really, of people in the industry, people who write about wrestling like I do, people who are historians, maybe some people behind the scenes, people that I've been privileged to know and work with over the years. And we'll kind of do that from week to week. So let's talk about the name, first of all, or second of all, I should say. I kind of want to get into that because um, this is a phrase that has been around in wrestling for a while now and from time to time has been associated with me, which is shut up and wrestle. That's kind of why I picked it. Um, I do not make a claim to have coined this term, this expression. It's been around at least since the Attitude Era, as far as I recall. Um, it's been used, I think, Harley Race's World League Wrestling Indie um, has used it as their catchphrase. Uh, I believe there's a um, an indie in New England, uh, the name escapes me, that uh, uses the phrase shut up and wrestle. And I know, for example, that even very recently, um, Eric Bischoff on his podcast um, used that term in reference to AEW. Um, but my connection with that goes back to a column that I wrote for WWE about 20 years ago, which gained me my initial kind of 15 minutes of infamy when I wrote this column on WWE's own website, um, criticizing the company for not having enough wrestling on their shows and being a little too talky 
and and having promos that went on and on and on and on. And I did this because we were told to try to be edgy in our columns. And I just sort of went into business for myself. And I, I, I remember at the time there was no social media yet. This is like 2002 or three. Uh, but whatever there was of the internet, like message boards and things like that, there was a lot of discussion about how could WWE let this guy write a column like that? And clearly he had to have been told to do that, or clearly he's going to be fired and this, that, the other thing. And it was a, a subject of debate. And, and at the time when I worked at WWE, my name kind of got associated with that phrase, shut up and wrestle. And over the years, I've used it for various columns and things that I've written. I, I used it for a column that I used to write for onewrestling.com years ago. Um, and I mentioned it on the 605 Super Podcast about a month before um, it was brought up again on Bischoff's show. So I definitely, I don't want people thinking that, um, that I stole this idea from Mr. Bischoff, whom I respect gratefully. I certainly did not. Uh, but it is a phrase that's always been associated with me. And so I decided to add it to um, or rather label it as the name of my podcast. And that's why I call it um, Shut Up and Wrestle. So um, before I get to talking about my guest and who I'm having on here today, I want to talk about a few projects that I am working on. So I mentioned earlier the Sheik book, the biography, Blood and Fire. Um, this is a project that I've been working on now for the past two years. I'm extremely proud of it. Um, I talk about it a lot online. So if you follow me there, you may know a lot about it. It is the first biography, really, of a person I consider to be the greatest heel in the history of professional wrestling. And I got this idea in my head years back that he basically was the most famous and important wrestler, particularly of his generation, who had never had a biography written about him. So I wanted to correct that, and I wanted to be the one to do it. So I pitched it to ECW Press, and they said yes, much to my delight, and it's taken over my life ever since. So um, right now, just uh, for people that are interested and have been asking me questions uh, as far as updating on the status of the book, it does come out April 12th officially. Um, it will be available on audiobook, and I believe I will be the one recording that book, which I'm excited about. Um, it will also be available in digital and print forms. Um, Pre-ordering is available now. So if you go to Amazon or wherever else you order books online, you can actually put in a pre-order for this book and make sure you get it. Um, as far as where it's at, the last stage of it right now is the layout stage, which I just was privileged enough to get a chance to look over the finished PDF of the book and what it's actually going to look like kind of put my last finishing touches on it. And um, it's it's going to, I believe, be going off to the printers in January. So I'm going to obviously keep everybody updated on the status of that project and how it's going week to week, because it's something that I'm very excited about. Um, I also want to talk about a couple of the magazines that I'm in. So the new issue of Inside the Ropes, or I should say the most recent issue, which is issue 15, the December 2021 issue. If you pick that up, and you can get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. I have an article in there on the history of King of the Ring, which I had a lot of fun writing. So you might want to check that out. Also, um, the, the current issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which is the January 2022 issue with the women's 150 on the cover, 
Um, that is a magazine which you could also check out. It has my most recent columns in it, which one of them is about my attendance at the most recent International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame banquet weekend. And I also have my Way It Was column. That's an old school vintage wrestling column that appears in there. And in this particular issue is all about uh, wrestling at the chase and the history of wrestling in St. Louis. So that is in the January 2022 issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which you can pick up at getpwi.com. And actually, that's a perfect segue for right now, because I want to talk about the person whom I'm having here as my first guest ever on Shut Up and Wrestle, my first conversation. And um, he is Mr. Stu Sachs, which for readers of wrestling magazines, this name is in the pantheon of great names. If you grew up reading um, wrestling magazines in the 80s and 90s, let's say, this is someone that you absolutely would know because he is uh, or was, I should say, the publisher, not just of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but of the entire line of wrestling magazines that were put out by what was then London Publishing, what is now Kappa Publishing. Um, he was certainly somebody who was very, very influential to me. And I um, am eternally grateful to him as we get into in this conversation uh, for giving me a chance really to continue to write about professional wrestling after I had left WWE, where I thought I really would never have that platform again to reach people um, with my writing about wrestling. And Stu gave me a shot in 2007, uh, right out of WWE. We were introduced by Frank Vitucci, who was the photo editor for PWI, who eventually became photo editor for WWE. And uh, we hit it off and I've been writing for that magazine ever since. So Stu is somebody that I've always wanted to really have one of these conversations with uh, because he, he tends to be a little bit reclusive. He recently retired um, and he's been um, kind of quiet ever since. And so I wanted to kind of coax him out of his shell and get to talk to him a little bit about the, the, the sport and the business that he loves and the role that he played in it. So um, without further ado, I'm going to take us now to the conversation that I had with Stu Sachs. Okay, so I would like to now officially welcome to the podcast somebody that I've had the pleasure to know uh, for, I want to say, about 14 years now, and it is the longtime editor and publisher, now living happily in retirement, of <laughs> Pro Wrestling Illustrated and other Kappa and London publishing magazines like Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler and all the ones that I'm sure a lot of people listening grew up with, um, Mr. Stu Sachs. Well, thank you for that introduction, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's let's do it. Yeah, this is great. I, I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. Um, first of all, I, I mean, uh, for a lot of people like me, who, who grew up reading these wrestling magazines. I know I make you feel old when I say that. I'm sorry. But people say that to me now, actually. Like, <laughs> oh, I, I grew up reading your articles in WWE magazine. And I'm like, oh, okay, that, thank you very much. So I kind of know how you feel. But for people like me who grew up reading that stuff and, you know, your name is, is legendary. And even though you, 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 know, you never were as high profile by choice, I understand, as, as like Bill or, or Bill Apter and people like that, um, we all know who you are. We all know the name. We may not we may not be able to pick you out in the street, but we know who you are. That's right. I exist. That's I live to exist. So I've accomplished that at least. 
And so, I mean, I have to ask right off the bat, I mean, I always pictured, and you may shatter my illusions here, but when I was growing up and I'm reading the magazines and I just pictured it as being the most fun place in the world to work. Just It just felt, I don't know if you guys were just cultivating this, this image, but it just felt like it was a blast, like it was just a bunch of people just having a great time. Is that, I mean, was it like that? Well, I was there for 40 years. So you could imagine that there were times when it was exactly like that and times when it was not. Um, when I first started there, I had no intention whatsoever of doing this for a career. You know, I was, I grew up as a wrestling fan and, um, I got my interview for the magazine in a, through a, a totally different avenue. Um, my goal was to be a sports writer for a daily newspaper, but the opportunity came and I said, okay, well, it's a job, man, I'll take it. Uh, so I took the job and I didn't realize the atmosphere was so fantastic. The people, it's just as you imagined it. People were, we had a whole lot of fun. Um, stuff that we probably shouldn't have been doing. You know, we, we, let's, I'll give you a typical work day. Okay. okay. We, we got there at nine. We worked hard until 12. From 12 to one, it was lunch. So full hour for lunch and often extended beyond that because we would go to the park and play hoops or swim or whatever. So we always, we always, the lunch hour sometimes became quite a bit more. So when we came back, we would work again for another hour, hour and a half. And then the fun began. We, we, we've gone through um, stratomatic baseball, poker, wiffle ball. These are things that actually happened in the office. And, um, and then, you know, I don't, there's nobody, I can't get in trouble anymore because, you know, what, what can they do to me now? Uh, by four o'clock, people were leaving. By 3.30, people were leaving. And I'm looking around when I first got there, I'm going, what's going on here? And they were like, we're done. We, we did what we need to do for the day and people would leave. And, you know, I was, you know, I, at, in the beginning, I was a little bit uncomfortable with that. That didn't, that was very foreign to me, you know, not right. for putting in the full nine, eight hours. And then after a while I was gone by, uh, by four o'clock. So it was, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and very loose. And the guys were, we were all young at the time. Everybody got along great. It was, it was a great working atmosphere. And I mean, okay, so that confirms basically what I and I think a lot of people thought that it was a blast. And I have to say, I don't know if it's just a wrestling magazine thing or what, but other than the skipping out early thing, I would say I would say that really describes a lot of what the environment was like at WWE publications department. Honestly, for for a lot of the time I was there, especially before I would say before we had Shane really watching us very closely <laughs> when, when we were really under the radar, it was a lot more relaxed, but I find like that for creative people, that, that's how you work better. I always feel like just, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> you're rolling your eyes, but, but I'm like, you know, if, as long as you're getting the work done, like you said, people are going like, well, we did what we needed to do. As long as it's getting done. I mean, it's getting done. That's the most important thing, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we probably could have done more. You know, it, we, <laughs> but you, know, you we guys were putting out like 40 magazines a year. I don't even know how you were doing that. 
Yeah, but but if we worked the full eight hours, we probably could have slipped in another uh, another magazine. So, so when you the, were, yeah, we we could have made the boss even more money. So speaking <laughs> of the boss, I wanted to mention that. So how present, how much of a factor in day to day environment was Stanley Weston? And obviously, for people listening who may not know. Stanley Weston, a legendary name in wrestling magazines, who I campaign every year really needs to be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. He's yeah. got to be in, especially now that that Bill went in. And I think even Bill would agree with me. If he is in, then Mr. Weston, as he always refers to him, needs to be in, too. So what was he around a lot or was it sort of like, ah, I'm letting you kids handle this thing? I'm going home. It's pretty much the way you describe it. <laughs> um, I mean, in the. In the early days before I got there, he he was he did it all. I mean, he was very involved, from my understanding. But by the time I got there, he he realized that the people he hired, or the people he hired who hired the other people, knew what they were doing and, and knew how to make money for him. And he didn't have to be involved. So he would come in maybe um, maybe ten o'clock, and. Before the uh, you know the wiffle ball or stratomatic baseball started, he was gone. Right. So and you know he would not once he left, he never came back. You know that was so we didn't have to. Even though he lived in the same town where the you know where the magazine actually I shouldn't say that because in the beginning we were in Freeport, which is two towns over from where he lived in Rockville Center, and then he built a building in Rockville Center, but it was still the same deal. He he came in for a little while and then and then he was gone. That that was the way it was until he purchased the Ring magazine, and then he took a much more active role in reformulating the magazine and and getting it going the way he wanted. And then he then he stepped back again. So by that time, he 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 knew there was a winning formula, and I think he figured, you know, I'm making a pretty pretty good living by letting these guys do their thing, and I don't need to be involved, and I'm having more fun doing what I'm doing without having to be there. So I had, right. I, when I was, when I became editor in chief in, um, 87, I would go in and talk to him every single day and I'd give him a report on, just talk to him. He just, he just wanted me to come in and talk to him, give him, give him a little bit of an overview of what's going on. Um, talk about the, the boxing business or the wrestling business. So just, so he's, you know, he's in tune and he, you know, so he, he expected me to come in every single day. And, um, and I did, and it was, it was fine. I, I enjoyed his company. He was a really nice man most of the time. And, um, you know, so that was, that, that was his involvement. He, beyond that, very, very little. Now, and he had been doing it, uh, wrestling magazines and boxing magazines going back to the fifties, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was that far back. Um, I, w- I couldn't give an exact date. I would say probably the early sixties. Yeah. And I think Inside Wrestling came to be in that was the first regular monthly magazine that was not with a boxing magazine. Not they used to have a boxing illustrated illustrated wrestling monthly or right. Yeah, I think it was right. Boxing Illustrated and Wrestling Monthly. Wrestling News or something. I can't remember. To be honest kind of a but, clumsy title. Yeah. I really yeah, that yeah. One, but and yeah. And that, that was the formula the ring had. They, they did boxing and wrestling together for a very a lot a lot of years and he used to he used to be with the ring for many many years working under nat fleischer he actually got his start in the business by mowing nat's lawn and um and he came to work for nat fleischer at the ring and he 
he drew a lot of the covers for the Ring magazine. Um, so I think it was 1965 or six that he started his very first wrestling only magazine, which was Inside Wrestling. And then The Wrestler was a, maybe a year or two after that. Right. And, you know, I always wondered about that whole thing of of the ring and, you know, his getting control of the ring magazine, because I had, you know, my grandfather was a boxer, a prize fighter and a, and a coach for many, many years. And okay. boxing was in our family. And so he read the ring every month. So I was always very aware of it. I always found it amusing that it was under it wound up under the same umbrella as wrestling magazines it always seemed like such a, i mean i know originally they had been together you know the content had been together right. but it, it always seemed so strange to me Did, didn't he did he buy it from burt sugar is that how that happened no the, this is the way it went okay the, stanley did always did boxing magazines separately so the ring wasn't like a new thing for him as far as a boxing publication in fact at the same time that roughly the same time within months of starting Pro Wrestling Illustrated in 1979, he started a magazine called KO Magazine. And KO became, it was really, really good magazine. I mean, mm. great writers, not just, not just our own staff people, but we, we found a lot of really fine um, in, um, freelance writers to write for it. So, and it was very highly high-class magazine. And KO became the rival to Ring Magazine, who was owned at the time, not by Bert, because Bert never owned the ring. Bert okay. ran, he ran the ring, but he never owned it. It was owned by um, a, an old Nick, Dave the Busher, okay. and, um, and, and a partner whose name escapes me. Um, so they've had many different owners over the years. But this is at, that, at the time that, that um, KO was rivaling the ring, and I think we were winning the battle for the most part, even though the ring still had some really good people on it. Um, but they started to falter uh, financially and they were, they were really on the verge of going under. And the company president for GC London, who worked directly underneath Stanley, his name was Ken Goditis, he, he was put in charge of trying to find a way to purchase the ring um, basically out of bankruptcy. Mm. And he did. And he, he bought the ring. He, he was the, the, uh, the, the key guy in buying the ring, negotiating with, with creditors and all, and all to, to get the ring out of bankruptcy and into Stanley's hands. And that's, that's how Stanley became owner of the ring in wow. 1989. I never knew that. So he, he basically kind of saved it then. I mean, from, yes. from oblivion, that, that's amazing. Um, that's a that's great. I, I never knew that. So we'll get back to the magazine stuff in a second. But I do, as I mentioned to you, I also want to talk about the fact because because part of what I want to do on this podcast um, is, you know, for people that I'm having on here, I, I, I don't always just want to talk about what they've done in their careers. But most of the people that I'm bringing on here are also people who loved wrestling at some point in their life and they were into it, especially the older school wrestling that a lot of us love. And so I'd like to talk about that, too, because even from talking to you over the years, I know that you grew up as a wrestling fan, right? I did. In, in 1968, I went to visit my, my grandparents in Miami Beach. And my grandfather was a big sports fan and a huge wrestling fan. And he took me to the Miami Beach Convention Center to watch wrestling live. Wow. And that's what really hooked me on it. And I've tried to find 
somehow to find that card to see who, who I actually saw. The only one I remember, it was Sailor Art Thomas, because he was such an impressive physical specimen. And so I remember him. But other than that, I don't remember who I saw. But I remember really enjoying it. And I was pretty much hooked at that point. And, uh, you know, when I obviously that was Florida wrestling, I didn't get to see that where I live, which is Long Island, New York. And, you know, we saw a different different style of wrestling, a different uh, different, you know, the WWF at the time. And I started watching that on uh, UHF TV. It, mm. I don't think it was on any uh, any chat regular VHF channel at the time. So you had to you know, put up these uh, this this. Uh, this ring on the back of your TV set that was the UHF antenna. I remember. I had a lot of 47. And so, yeah. It was, it came in very snowy, but you could watch it. So, this was right. This was that period where they were on the Spanish channel, the Spanish language channel in New York City, right? Or, or wasn't 47 a, a Spanish, was, or had they not changed over to that yet? I mean, I'm sure the broadcast was in English, but I think yes, they the were. the broadcast was in English. Um, I, I, I gotta tell you, Brian, I don't remember if it was on, you know, like the re- regular VHF channels at the time. Uh, I, be- I believe, you know, sh- I really got into it as, uh, when I was, I'd say like in the 1970, 71. And I think it was at that point for sure it was on the, the VHF, uh, the UHF channel along yeah. with, um, Spanish wrestling from from Los Angeles at the Olympic auditorium, which was on channel 41 on the UHF dial. And that was in Spanish. Right. Right. You know, I've talked to other people that, that grew up in the New York area around that time. And I think a lot of times people forget, you think, okay, you, you grew up in New York or you grew up in the Northeast. So all, all you got to see is WWF, but, but there were things like that, right. LA wrestling would be on. And I think even, uh, I don't know if, if you ever saw this, but I think Florida wrestling at some point in the 70s was on UHF in the New York area, too. Do you yeah. remember anything about that? Well, if, it, if it was in the time zone where I was becoming a uh, where my love for wrestling was growing, I would have seen it. So yeah. not during that time, because I I scoped out everything that had wrestling. I was I was a real lunatic. I mean, I, <laughs> I love sports. But for some reason, some reason, wrestling grabbed me like no other. And I would go to the library. I think I probably told you the story before. I go to the to the local library and I would just go through microfilms just to see if I could find results of wrestling matches from Madison Square Garden. Because I, I didn't know the dates of the cards, but I knew that they always had their matches on Mondays. So I would look in the, in the New York Times microfilms for the Tuesday sports section and they would be maybe a a six paragraph story on wrestling. They'd always have the results of the wrestling matches. And I would print off these results, uh, you know, the article from, from the microfilm and I would tape it into a, uh, a scrapbook. And that's still in the office. Wow. It's all still there. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You did mention that to me once about the the microfilm. And, and the reason I remember you mentioning it to me is because I used to do the same thing, <laughs> actually, late, later, you know, than you like I, I came along a little later. And my thing was, you know, when I first started was in the late 80s watching the WWF. And um, also, like you trying to remember, like I try to remember what who was on the card that I went to see that my first show was at Madison Square Garden, uh, July 1987. I was able to look it up. But I had a, a professor 
in college who hired me as like an assistant while I was in college. And he used to have me do all this research work at the library. And <laughs> I was very delinquent in my work, I have to say, because as soon, when I discovered the microfilm, the first thing that popped into my head is, oh, I wonder if they have old wrestling results, right? That's literally the first thing I thought of. All of world history is at my fingertips. <laughs> the New York Times, I could look up anything I want. And I'm like, I wonder if they have the article from when Bruno San Martino won the heavyweight title. And so I would do the same thing. And he caught me finally and, and he fired me. So I have to say ah. my first professional experience. Yeah, he was like, I don't remember asking you to look up anything on microfilm, you know. But, but if you knew where this would lead to in your life and, and how, yeah. you know, how well-rounded your life became, and, and, you know, that, he probably would have approved. That's where it all started. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my, my obsessions. But well, I, I didn't have to look up results of the matches that I saw because I wrote everything down. Wow. I, 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 I used to have and this stuff is still in the office. It's still there. To, I didn't take it home because I know my wife would throw it out, but it's still there. I would take I would take the results of all the shows, all the all the TV wrestling, which in those days was you know jobber special. There was yeah. there was always you know winner versus a loser. But I have all the results, the times of the matches, who was interviewed between the third and the fourth match. It's all down on paper, and I would keep records. So I had the win loss records and draws for all the wrestlers I saw in WWF and the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. It's all down there. Midgets, ladies, the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm hoping now if if Kevin McElvaney listens to this, the the, yes. the the new editor, well, is he really new anymore? I don't know. It's It's been like a year, but the newish editor-in-chief of EWI, <laughs> we really hope you're taking care of this of this uh, irreplaceable archival stuff from Stu. He told me he told me that he needed the loosely binders, so he just threw out all the stuff that was inside. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I hope you're kidding. That's like you know, uh, you know, you don't you don't want to destroy artifacts like that. But um, mm -hmm. I was just thinking because I mentioned you know looking up those results. I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your guy growing up was Bruno, right? I mean, that's not really a stretch. It was probably a lot of people, you know, were big fans of his in the Northeast, but but you were a huge Bruno San Martino fan, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think what was what made it a stronger affection for Bruno was the way wrestling was presented on television back then. They didn't give you Bruno that often. They would give you they would give you Bruno during interviews to promote the next show with the guard and the next show with the spec of whatever the Philadelphia, I guess it was the spectrum, you know, whatever, whatever main events he was on and they would localize those interviews during the, uh, the, the TV broadcast. But as far as him wrestling, you might have seen him on TV twice a year. Yeah. And so you, you, the only way to get Bruno was to go to the arena and see him, which was really, I, I think, I think was, Great marketing in the, at a time when their their uh, their business model was based on arena shows. Now it's based, you know, you got to get ratings, so you have to put the stars on every show. But in those days, you 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 got little, very little Bruno, so you wanted more. The more you the, you, you wanted more Bruno, and you and you had to go to see him. You had to pay your money.
Yeah, that really was the shift, I guess, you know, with the Monday Night Wars and 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 Raw and, and wanting to get ratings, right? You're not going to just put squash matches because you're worried somebody's going to change the channel. I mean, nobody, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I was just a kid, but I don't think anybody was tracking the ratings of, you know, WWF superstars and wrestling challenge and those kind of shows. I mean, nobody, it wasn't really a ratings thing. It was more like you said, it was kind of almost like an infomercial for the house shows. Like they were selling you on, Hey, you got to come and see this live. That was the thing. And what you were saying about Bruno, I remember the same thing about Hogan and you, I'm sure you remember too. It's like, you, you never saw him. Although the difference was we had Saturday night's main event and pay-per-views and things a couple of times a year, you know, where you'd see him. But on the weekly shows, never, unless it was an interview. I have to say, I remember on the regular Saturday morning shows as a kid, I maybe saw one Hulk Hogan match, and it was a squash match with Tiger Chung Lee. Anything else, I, I had to pay I remember money. remember that, because I had my money on Tiger Chung Lee. I took the, uh, I took the, uh, the 100 to 1 odds, and I lost. So. Yep. See, so, see, so you remember that, but with yeah, yeah. Bruno, it, he was even more rare. It was like, I mean, uh, you know, everything you see when you look up, especially when you look up his results, here's the thing. He was wrestling nonstop constant. If you look up his results and things like people talk about how hard the wrestlers have it now and how much they're on the road and everything like that. I mean, Bruno San Martino as the WWF champion was wrestling six days a week, six nights a week, sometimes more than once a day. But the right. difference was it wasn't on TV. So unless you were there, you didn't see it. So it seemed right. like he was, you know, this kind of like elusive figure. But from his point of view, he was working his ass off. I mean, he was working. Exactly. Every, he was probably working more than anybody else that they had. He, he had to be on almost every show. Right. And, and, and you know, it took a toll on him, you know, physically and, and mentally. And, and, you know, that he wanted he wanted out and, and Vince Sr., really was like no you can't do that we, we need you and it took a while before you know hey how long was he champion the first run seven and a half years that's yeah. a long that's a long time putting that kind of mileage on your body wrestling such a funny thing though isn't it it's like it's the only thing you could think of where in any in any quote-unquote sport or whatever where the champion is begging begging to have the title taken off of him you know, <laughs> you know it's like yeah. could you imagine you know, somebody in boxing going like, I really, I really don't want to be making this money anymore and being this world heavyweight champion. Could somebody could just, could somebody just beat me, you know, but, but wrestling is really like that. And Bruno knew, knew, he really knew that he, that he was carrying the weight of that company on his shoulders. And I think if, if Vince senior had had his way, he probably would have held it without interruption all the way through through into the seventies. You know what I mean? I don't even know if there would have been Pedro Morales as champion. He would have just kept it until he couldn't do it anymore. Why not? I mean, look at the kind of attendance he was drawing. I mean, I could only go by, you know, the the major arenas and that's pretty much where he wrestled, but he was, he was selling the place out. You know, he, and it wasn't just the, the few times that I got to see him that made me fond of him. I I really, I liked him as a, a personality and, and, Furthermore, I got to like him more as, as, you know, as the publisher of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and having a relationship with him. And he was such a, a genuine, nice human being. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I would, we would talk a couple, two or three times a year. That's it. But each time it was, it was really like he, 
he knew me and you know he respected me and we had a great conversation and I, you know one of my one of my goals was to somehow mend the fences between Bruno and and WWE okay uh, I, I wanted to have a I wanted to have a part in that because I had the ear of both and I could just see that WWE wanted him back in the fold that was obvious and Bruno even though he said he didn't want to I think he just he just needed to be nudged to 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 show that that things have changed from when he really despised what was going on there you know the whole the whole steroid thing and and the scandals he he wanted no part of that but when he when I tried to convince him look things things aren't like they used to be they they cleaned up their act a lot and he, he kind of told me look i'm not, I, I i never say never you know if 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 you could initiate a conversation i'll talk to them but that's i can't guarantee anything and i really tried to make that happen um but it really took somebody at a much higher level than than me and that was you know, like triple h to to really make it to really solidify that and make it happen. And I was very pleased that it did. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when, when they made that announcement, that was really the one that I never thought I was going to hear. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I remember thinking, and and I would talk to my kids because my kids were getting into wrestling at that time. And ironically, after I left working for WWE, because they they were too little when I worked there and they kind of pulled me back into it. And I remember the hall of fame, you know, I was talking to them about it. I forget why. And I said, you know, this is the guy that I think it would be the most fun to see him go in. It would be really great, but it's never going to happen. And then literally like a month later, they announced the inductees. I guess it was 2013, right? Yeah, 2013. And he was on the list. And I, my, in fact, my kids brought it to my attention. They were like, Daddy, did you hear? That guy that you were telling us was never going to go in the Hall of Fame. He's going in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, Backlund went in the same year because, you know, Backlund's thing always was whenever they would ask him, supposedly, he would say, I can't go in before Bruno, so I'm not going to do it. And the second, yeah, the second that he heard Bruno's going in, he finally agreed to do it. That's why they went in the same year. And and so ironically, so perfectly, it went into Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it was just awesome. Did you get to go to that? I did. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. I was there with my kids. We were there. And boy, I mean, for anyone that was there, I have to say, and I mean, you actually remember, you know, the days of Bruno wrestling. I, that's a little before my time. But to sit yeah. in the stands and to hear the crowd chant in Madison Square Garden, by the way, chanting Bruno, it was like you felt like you were in a time machine. It was crazy. Yeah. Bill, Bill after pointed out, I thought this was so appropriate that. Bruno's uh, entry music was the fans chanting his name. He didn't need any music. He just came out in his, you know, his, his green tights and boots and, and, you know, just him. And that was it. He didn't, he didn't need any, uh, you know, pyro. He didn't need any music. He was just, the fans were so in love with him that they, it was, it was, it was really special to watch him, but those, those were great days. And in fact, the very, very first garden show that I saw was the day that he lost the title to, uh, to Ivan Koloff. You mean you were there? Yes. Oh, man, we're, we're burying the lead here. Okay. Yeah. Wow. 
<laughs> wow. Oh my God. So you were there for the, you know, so quiet you could hear a pin drop moment. Absolutely. I coined that phrase. Nobody had ever said that before me. <laughs> really? Okay. Well. Well, okay. All right. I'm sad. <laughs> um, here's the other the other irony to that date, which was January 18th, 1971. I don't remember dates that well, but that one I remember. Right. I was in the I was sitting in the uh the nosebleeds with with Matt Rock <laughs> taking taking notes because that was going to be the very first show that I had in my very first wrestling newsletter. Oh, so I was actually working there as a professional. Uh, so I took the notes and I, I typed up the results in my newsletter along with a whole bunch of other results. And I sent that into the magazines, including Bill After at Inside Wrestling. And that was, so I sent them my prototype wrestling results newsletter. And I had to wait for them to read it and to put it into their fan club sections to, to generate some interest in people ordering my newsletter. So there was a good four month gap between covering that show and then starting my newsletter in earnest because there was no reason to put it out until the, that write-up came in, came in that told people to send their 35 cents to Stuart Sachs for, the, for his newsletter. So for, I, sat, I sat on my hands for four or five months and then once the, uh, that little blurb came into the magazine, thank you, Bill, that got me started and I would go to the shows and I would gather my, uh, my results from different correspondents around the world, um, including one Dave Meltzer from uh, the San Francisco Bay area. And this goes back, this is like 1971, 72. And I did that newsletter until, uh, until I went to college in 1974. Wow. You know, and I think I've told you this, but I, the, the clipping you're talking about where they, published your newsletter info in the magazine. I remember coming across that because I have a huge collection of old uh, wrestling magazines and specifically, mm-hmm. specifically the, the London ones, the Stanley Weston ones. And um, I remember seeing that in there. And I think I might've even reached out to you and been like, is this you? <laughs> and, it, and it had, you know, <laughs> your, your information and everything. And it was, I think from the early seventies. So it yeah. might've been that, but um, so, so what, so, Take take me through it. What was it actually like being in the building, being in the room when that happened? Because you always people always read about it. It's like a cliche at this point. I've talked to Dick Kroll about it, who was the ref in the match. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like? I mean, how how heavy did it get? It, it I mean, you described it perfectly. You know, you could, it was silent. It, it there's not a single person there that had. A, an inkling of what was going to happen. You, why would you? I mean, it was a very protected business, obviously, right. back then. You know, the guy held the title for seven and a half years. There's no reason to think that he was going to lose. It, it, not even a thought. Especially because he, he had already beaten Koloff before, right? I think they had yes. met and he had beaten him. Right. So people were shocked and stunned. They, you, 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 people didn't boo. They didn't, obviously didn't cheer. It was just, I can't believe what I just saw. He, he actually counted three and he, Bruno didn't lift his shoulder. What's going on? And it was, it was, it was really stunning. It, and it was eerie. It was actually eerie to hear silence in that arena, but everybody was in the same shoes. Very strange. 
Yeah, that, you know, Bill wrote an article about that for WWE.com a few years ago. I think it might have been some kind of anniversary of, of it. Obviously not. It wasn't the 50th, which we just passed, but it might have been the 40th or something like that. And yeah, he talked about that. And I think he was saying, and maybe you can confirm this, that they didn't even announce the the win or they didn't even like announce that Koloff was the new champion. It was almost like, oh, we have to get out of here. Like, let's get out of here before this place burns down or something like I don't even did they even hand him the belt? Do you remember? I don't think so. I, I, I'm not totally sure. I, I have the pictures in my head, but I just the pictures that, that are in my head, I think, are that Bill shot backstage. Um, but and he got I'll tell you something. Bill working with a very uh, rudimentary camera, got some fantastic photos. And, and it's such a, a blessing for history that he was able to get these great photos of this match, especially mm. the ending, because it would have been lost to history. Yeah, so, that that knee drop off the top, right, or, or off the middle rope or something. It was a big yeah. knee drop that Koloff hit, and like you said, Bruno didn't get up. And I remember, you know, I can't remember. And I apologize to Bill if I get this wrong. If because I've interviewed, I interviewed Bruno a couple of times. I can't remember if he said this to me or if I read it in the article that Bill wrote. But Bruno was saying that he himself felt terrible, not that he was because he was losing it. But he felt he he realized how much it was hurting the fans and he right. felt so bad at the reaction like in the, like, you know, he wanted to drop the belt. He was he, he had had enough. He needed a rest. He was looking forward to getting off the road and, you know, not having to do that anymore for a little while or look. But when it actually happened, he was sort of like, oh, I, I feel terrible. Like I've, I've let everybody down. Like I've caused so much pain to these people that really believe in me. And he, and he really felt bad about it. Yeah. And that's the way he was people crying, you know, people were actually crying at ringside. So yeah, that's, it, it was unbelievable. I, I, what a, what a great first match to see. Yeah, really? <laughs> I mean, that's, for, it's all downhill from there. I mean, how do you, how do you top, that I mean, even uh, forget about even just the match itself, but just the historic moment of what you what you saw there. I mean, that's that's wild. It's really wild. Um, I know that um, they when they when they did that finish. I remember even when I talked to Dick Kroll, the referee. He even he was really really concerned, and, and you know he was worried that there was going to be a riot or something. And right. he said it was the exact opposite. I mean, it was just like everybody just was paralyzed, you know. But but isn't that isn't that crazy to think about? Now think about how much the business has changed, right? I mean, like the closest thing, and it's not even close, but the closest thing I could think of in the last couple of years, and I, I think you may be thinking of what I'm thinking, is when well, the un- yeah. Yeah, when, when Brock Lesnar ended the Undertaker's streak, it yeah. was like, you know, people, the fans are smartened up now. They're not, you know, they don't think that they're watching a competitive contest. But in that moment, that that record meant so much to people that yes. it was like, right, like, like they couldn't believe it. Like that famous shot of that one fan with his eyes bugging out, you know, it was, but, but it was, a, it's a different thing now because like back then, with Bruno, it was more like, I can't believe that Bruno lost, but now it's more, it's, it's not, I, it's not so much. I can't believe that Lesnar beat the undertaker. It's, 
I can't believe that they decided to end the Undertaker streak. You know right. what I mean? Right. Right. Fans don't look at wrestling the way they did back then. You know, it's every, everybody is everybody's their own little promoter. Everybody, everybody's trying to outguess what the promoter is going to do next. Who's going to who are they going to have win the next match? It, it's it's so different. It, it, people don't appreciate I shouldn't say all, but there are most people don't appreciate wrestling for wrestling's sake anymore. It's it's like it's like their own little fantasy league that they have to, you know, try to figure out. Oh, mm. you know, and, and then then they don't rate a card on the match quality. They rate it on you know like the 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 what what WWE did at at, at uh, right. WrestleMania. How they how they you know how they organized it and and you know it, it just it's so different now well it went from you know there were always people that followed the business from the inside and they followed it from kind of an industry point of view but it seems like now all the fans follow it that way it's like they the, the, the you know they'll discuss ratings and things like that and that's all well and good when you're reading it in the observer or if you're in the business or but but for the average fan to be arguing, you know, you've got AEW fans arguing with WWE fans over TV ratings. I don't know. It just doesn't seem as much fun to me. You know, I mean, back then you really believed in these, in these guys. And I think, you know, like you're saying how people have lost, you know, people watch the show so differently. Now I just tweeted something the other day, because I was thinking about how people don't just watch the shows to be entertained anymore. Like, like every show is judged on, how much uh how many title changes there were like how much storylines got uh, moved forward like did somebody turn heel or face and and if you don't have all these earth-shattering things on a show it's considered a failure and i'm just like what about just turning on a show for two hours to enjoy a good wrestling show and be entertained and that's the end of it i mean why why is that so wrong if they had you could watch a, a wrestlemania with a lot of great action and fans sitting on their hands and not reacting to any of it. And, and it just blows my mind because if wrestlers were doing the things they're doing now, back when I was young and like, you know, in the seventies, we would have gone out of our minds with the, with just with the action. It's just, people are so jaded. They just can't appreciate what they're seeing these guys do. And, and you know, they're putting their bodies on the line every single day and taking these daredevil risks. And people are like, ah, if, they, if they get into a, a, a little bit of a rest hold just to break the action for a few minutes, a few seconds, you know, they'll start chanting boring. Give right. them a break. Look what they're doing out there. It's unbelievable. I know. I, know. I, I always hated that chant, but, but that comes from watching wrestling like it's scripted entertainment right because if you're watching it and you're really into it as a sport and you're suspending your disbelief right if somebody has somebody down in this punishing hold and they're not necessarily moving all over the ring for a couple of minutes you're watching it thinking oh my god i, I wonder how my guy is going to get out of this you know you know what i mean right. you're concerned is he going to break this hold? Is he going to get to the ropes? What is he going to do? Is he going to reverse it? But now a fan watching it is just going, this is, ah, nobody's doing anything. This is boring, you know, because they're, they're just, they realize that the people in the ring are entertainers, right? They're not competitors. They're entertainers. 
So that is in the front of their mind at all times. And it becomes so much harder to just let go. And I think the reason the guys back then, they didn't have to, and this isn't a knock on them. They worked very hard, but they didn't have to do as much because people believed in it. And if people believe in what they're watching, you don't have to do as much. And and people have a, no question about it. They have a shorter attention span now and they, they, they can't, they can't, they have to be entertained like at a, peak level the whole time or else they just get eh, this is boring i'll either turn the channel off or i'll sit on my hands or i'll boo or i'll chant it, <laughs> you know that people people just they expect different things from it's not just wrestling it's from everything you know i always I, sometimes i you know i i am somebody i love old school wrestling i still follow current wrestling but you know sometimes i get I feel like I'm just being so cranky, but it's like you hear like the thing that everybody loves to do now, which is when they chant, uh, this is awesome. Right. That's a big one. But here's the thing. It's like they're not they're not chanting for anybody in the match to win. They're not rooting for anybody. They are chanting about the match like like they're (laughs) if that makes sense, like they're they're expressing how entertained they are by this match it's almost like they don't necessarily even care who wins or loses you know they're not pulling for one in fact half the time with matches now you got half the crowd cheering for one guy and half the crowd cheering for the other guy which is really right and and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but when it's every big match i think that's a little that's a little too much for me like uh, that's just everybody wants to see a seven star Meltzer match you know that's what they're that's what they're gunning for that's the new standard uh, I I, <laughs> I love Dave. I think Dave is great. I will always be a Dave defender, but I don't know if he should have went past five stars. I almost feel like it starts to get a little crazy. Like how high are we going to get to? You know, I think, I think he, I don't know. I think he went to eight stars once or seven and a half or, or something like that. Our uh, inflation. <laughs> right. Adjusting for inflation. But <laughs> But to get back to, to the magazine stuff now, so you so you grow, you know, you, you're growing up in this era and you're you're watching wrestling in the 70s to the degree that you described. Um, and I asked this as somebody who I was kind of doing the same thing, but just in a later era, I was writing about wrestling in my local indie shows. I would be writing articles for the neighborhood newspapers back when they were a thing, you know, in the 90s. I would be cover, I would be taking my own black and white photographs of the shows and doing all this. I had a column in the in the college newspaper at, at my college and and I was trying like I, re- I remember sending clips in. I probably sent you stuff that you rejected because this would have been this would have been like in the mid 90s, probably. And and I remember sending stuff to Vince Russo at WWF magazine. I sent to George Napolitano, anybody I could find that I anybody I saw at the top of a masthead of a wrestling magazine. But so for me to get to work for WWE in that capacity, it really was, especially in the early years, it was like a pinch me kind of a thing. Like it almost felt like I was in a movie, like my life was being scripted. Like, how could this really happen? You know, that, 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 that this would happen to me of all people. Did, was it something that grew out of your being a fan or was it just a coincidence? I think it was a little bit of both, but more, more coincidence than anything else. Because like I said, I, I was passionately into it until I got to college. And then I just totally was out of touch with wrestling. And I was there for five years. So I I knew nothing of what was going on from 1974 until 1979. Had no clue. 
um, I took a I took a job in uh, 1976 as a part timer for uh, the Long Island newspaper Newsday, covering the high school sports, and so it was a part time job, 25 30 hours a week while I was in college, and there I met. Um, well, here I'll go back one step. They, when I was working for my college newspaper, the the managing editor was Michael Cape. And he eventually went to work for GC London, even though he was not even a sports fan. He just took it as a job. And he was a, he was a columnist for Inside Wrestling and, and, and you know, the wrestler. He wasn't there when PWI started. Um, so that was just like, that was, there's no real connection between my knowing Michael Cape and me getting a job at the magazine. But there was another guy, Gary Morgenstein, whose name you might be familiar with. Sure. He did, he did the on the road column and he was the main writer for, for the GC London magazines. And he was also, um, he was a part-timer at Newsday. He, he did the one who got me the interview originally. So I went down there and I was still two years away from graduating from, from college at Stony Brook. And I took a writing test and I was offered the job. And I had to make a decision at that point. Do I take this job or do I stay in school? I knew I couldn't do both. So I, after long, thinking long and hard about it, I decided, look, it's not the right time for me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn down this job. Somebody else left the magazine and that was offered the job a second time. And I turned it down a second time. Third time somebody left the magazine, I would already graduated and they said, look, Stu, you know, this is Peter King, the editor in chief says, this we want you, but this is the last time we're going to offer it to you. And I took the job at that point. Well, I mean, so it was really on the third, the third go around that I took the job and uh, didn't look back. Yeah. And, and so you, and you were there for a few years, obviously, before you became um, the publisher, right? You said 87 is when you got right. to that spot. So, you, and you were like, I, I was kind of joking about it at the beginning, but you know, you were a lot more low profile than people on, on the magazine that could be considered like more, I don't want to say celebrity, but, but kind of like public figures in wrestling, right? Like everybody knows whether, whether right or wrong and, and not really accurate, but those magazines were always known as the after magazines. I don't know right. how Stanley Weston felt about that, but I don't think he even knew, but you know, but they were known as that because obviously he was like the face of it. Right. So if you were a wrestling fan, Bill put himself out there as the face of those magazines. So why, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but did you choose to be, this kind of real behind the scenes type figure. Did you ever have the temptation to kind of in the wrestling vernacular, and I'm sorry, Bill, but to, to put yourself over like that, like, like those guys were doing. No, not really. Um, there's a couple of reasons why I maintained the low profile. One was <clears throat> there really is only one bill after. And bill was really, really good at what he did. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about his photography, which was stellar. You know, he, he was paramount to what we did in the office. But what he was able to do in the business, like just his personality, he, you know, Bill, you know how, how nice a guy he is. And he's trusted. He was trusted by the industry, which is 
in, in a very closed environment, to have somebody on the inside like that is, is vital. And Bill was able to do that. So I, I, I would never want to step on Bill's toes by trying to do what he did. And I couldn't do it as well. Bill was great at that. And, and then Craig Peters came along and he was also Mr. Personality. He was great. And the two of them did, did the, uh, you know, the, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated press conferences on TBS. They were great. So, you know, while we had great people out there doing that kind of thing, I really didn't think that was my strength at all. I don't think I, I don't think I could ever do anything anywhere near a good job as, as Bill or Craig doing that kind of thing. So it was my choice to say, look, um, two people out there doing this, and, and especially Bill, I'll just I'll just stay in the uh, in the in the background and you know try to do what I can to keep the magazines rolling while they're gone. You know, and um, you know, Bill was Bill was out a lot, but not not as much as you might think. You know, he would he would go on a I don't know maybe four or five trips a year, or six trips a year. But for the most part, we were all really working in the office. But Bill, yeah, Bill was the face of the magazine and a great one at that. And he and he still is like that to this day. I mean, I yes. I um I ran into him the last time was in August at the inaugural weekend for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, which is this new Hall of Fame they started in New York um, to kind of take the place of the of the old one that moved to Texas. And Bill was the master ceremonies for the induction. He did a one man show, which I don't know if, if you've ever seen this All or right. heard of it. Yeah, I've um, seen it. <laughs> it was, it's phenomenal. He's an entertainer. I said it to him after you are an entertainer. I mean, he's standing there. It was like he was the host of the Academy Awards. I mean, he, he reminded me of like when Billy Crystal used to do the Academy Awards and he's doing he's singing Barry Manilow songs. He's yes. working the crowd. He's standing yeah. on tables. And I just like I, I, I was just blown away. And but but the thing I wanted to mention, too, is he showed he he, he does these clip shows where he shows like behind the scenes of the old days in the magazines. And I, I was blown away by how often wrestlers would come down there and kind of goof around and have fun. And, you know, you had like yeah. the office wrestling championship. Yeah. Um, particularly when we were already in Pennsylvania and we were literally right up the street from where ECW used to perform. So before on the same, same block and maybe, maybe two miles up the road, and they would come in to the office before uh, before their card, and they Bill would photograph them. And of course, Bill, being the character that he is, involved everybody who came into the office in his in in an ongoing plot about Wonderful Willie and his challengers for the office championship wrestling belt. And it it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And you see little snippets of it. Right. I think um, I urge Bill not to make this public while uh, while I was working because it really uh, might not have looked so great for me. Um, I think Bill was put through a table by somebody upstairs. And uh, yeah, so there was there was some, you know, I, I, I asked him to hold back at some point. I think everybody's going to wind up seeing it, but it was it was unbelievable. It was so funny. And Bill in Bill in, in this wonderful Willie character. I mean, he's done a few different characters, but that's one of his best. Right. Um, and he would wrestle against these guys, and he he could hold his own. He knew, he knew what he was doing in there. You know, he put the figure four leg lock on uh, Jimmy Snuka, and uh, 
you know, Rob Van Dam did a, you know, a, a, a backward somersault off, off of a, uh, off a desk and landed on him and just all kinds of different guest celebrities involved. He showed footage of that RVD um, flip, that table thing you were talking about. He yeah. showed that to us during during the one man show uh, when when he did that. And he, um, when I worked, I worked with Frank Vitucci at WWE, mm-hmm. who started with you guys. And I always remember Frank saying, you know, he would always bring that up about the how WWE, especially outside of the magazine department, was a very corporate environment like much more stuffy and corporate than you would think and he would always say like wow it was it was so different over there like he would mention the championship belt and bill and bill like doing his you know muhammad ali impressions and jerry lewis and all that stuff and he would say boy this stuff that stuff would never fly here in a, in a million uh, different well we, we were fortunate to be in the the basement of the building a very large space but it was still the basement and nobody came, the only people that ever came into our area were um, the customer service people who were across the hall, but the, the executives never came down to the basement. They were, we, were, we were on our own. I don't think they wanted to know what was going on down there. <laughs> I bet. You know, we were kind of like that too, like just in our publication department. It was a lot of, I always like to call it the human resources nightmare. Like I just think back now, the challenges that would happen, the kind of conversations we would have and just the nicknames that we had for each other. Like I think about it now and it's like, I think all of our careers would be ruined if, if we tried to do that stuff now. But, it, but on that note, actually the, the last thing that I wanted to say in a very selfish way and, and kind of self-aggrandizing as to, to finish it though, is I wanted to also thank you. Cause I don't think I did. I mean, maybe I did when you were retiring, but I mean, you, you and PWI in general, but especially you, you guys gave me a chance to keep writing about what I loved about after I left WWE. You know, I left there in the spring of 2007 and I was kind of bummed out and bitter and I didn't want to know about wrestling anymore and all this. And I was like losing that that fire. And and Frank helped. Thank you, Frank Fatucci helped to make the introduction and you really gave me the chance to to keep writing about the thing I love the most. So so thank you for that. Well, uh, you're welcome. And um, you know my my thing was always looking for people who were talented writers. And if they if they happen to know wrestling at the same time, then then they're they're perfect for us. And that's that's where you fall in. I mean, just you don't get too many people. You know, you got you know. Al Castle, who, you know, talented writer and a, and a, and a wrestling guy, um, you know, you and, and uh, you know, Dan Murphy and, and, I, and you know, Mike Bessler, they, that, those are the people, I'm leaving out people who I should not leave out. I'm, this Harry is Burkett. Huh? Got to mention Harry Burkett. We don't want to oh, Harry. His oh. feelings. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Harry is the best. Harry's, Harry's, he was, he was great great writer and had this feel for the history of wrestling and was able to take it and tie it into the present like nobody else so yeah i miss harry i miss all the guys i do and i've been back a few times i said hello but it's different now you know you gotta work in with a mask on and uh, kevin's in a different area than i used to be and he's away from people and it's 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 kind of weird um but yeah i do like to poke my head in once in a while uh, I, I really do think, by the way, speaking of Kevin, that he's doing a really, really fantastic job. Um, 
I told him that he reminds me a lot of Craig Peters in the in that Craig it's would the not, hair, right? It's the hair. Not no. so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no. Craig took a there was a there was always a formula to the magazines. And when Craig got to the got to the magazines, he changed the formula. He innovated. He tried new things. And you know, that was, you know, I, I would I would make my changes in very subtle, gradual ways. But Kevin came in with like guns a blazing and he said, you know, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do and he did it and he did it quickly. Um, you know, so I, I he it, it's not easy. He's he's alone there. He's the only editorial person working in the office. He's the frequency went up from six magazines a year to nine. He's new in the position and he's doing well and then creating the website. Amazing. And uh, and he's out there. He's out there a heck of a lot more than I was doing interviews and you know making the magazine known. My, my hat's off to him. He's doing a fantastic job. I couldn't agree more. I really am am glad to see that he, you know, he has a vision, he has ideas and things he wants to do. It's not, and and it's not that there was anything wrong with it or it was broken or anything, but it's just, you know, he has been putting his mark on it and it's been a very positive mark. Yeah. Everybody wants to do that. You don't want to just take something over and just sort of like keep it going the way it was just like, you're just like a, like a custodian instead of an an editor, you know? And, and yes, He's been making really great changes and, and, and adjusting things. And magazine is great. I, I'm more active on it now than I've been in all these years. I would say since the pandemic started, I, I'm a regular monthly contributor now, which I never. I think the biggest thing he's done, and this is to the betterment of a lot of people, is he's given people an opportunity that wouldn't have gotten the opportunity when I was there. Because I I would go to the stalwarts. I would go. I. I would go to the same group of people because I, I knew that they would do a good job each and every month. Every time I gave them an assignment, I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to rewrite their stories. I knew they were going to do a good job. So I would hand off to them each and every time. He, he's allowed people uh, to, to opportunities that would not have gotten opportunities when I was there. And, and you know, a, a very diverse group of people added a, adds a lot of uh, layers to the magazine, I believe. Yeah, I agree. And that's part of what I like, too, is just like the, the bullpen that he's been able to build and draw from. As somebody who has been an editor of a wrestling magazine myself in another lifetime, I mean, that's a real skill to cultivate, to grow a dependable team, but also be able to kind of like rotate people and draw on people. And, and you know, maybe not every everybody's not there every time, but you know when to use people. That's a real skill. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, for those that have maybe you know, walked away from pro wrestling illustrated, or I know in some cases, you know, s- some people, some fans are, are not as much aware of it as they used to be in the old days. You know, I mean, sometimes I'll go around wearing my pro wrestling illustrated t-shirt and I'll get, you know, if I'll be at a show or something and some fans will be like, Oh, I always remember that magazine. You know, that, that magazine was great. That's really old school. And I'm like, I still write for them now. They're still around. You should pick it up. It's a great magazine. Yes. yes. It really That's is. exactly right. Everybody, everybody looks at pro wrestling. Pro Wrestling Illustrated in the past tense, and it's it's so far from the truth. True, true that wrestling magazines don't have the impact on the industry that they once did, right. but the magazine is still out there. It's still well run. It's it's well designed. It's well photographed. It, it's a, it's a lot of fun to read, and people are missing the boat if they just look at PWI as something from the uh, from the eighties. 
So then are you prepared now on the podcast to officially announce that you're coming out of retirement to take over Pro Wrestling Illustrated again? Is that, are you yes, ready? I, I gave, I gave Kevin a month and a half, a year and a half. He failed miserably. I'm coming back. No, <laughs> at, at, not a chance. I don't even, I, I'm very content doing what I'm doing. I, um, you know, I, I play a lot of softball. I have time for that. I, I play in a league with at 60 and over. And um, it, it, what amazes me about this league is that these people are really good. They're still, they're still excellent players. And uh, I'm part of the Upper Dublin, Fort Washington Fire Police. And that keeps me going. That's a, that's, I'm on call 24-7. So my, in the middle of the night, if there's something happening, if there's a fire or an accident, my, my phone goes off and my wife says, oh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a, a false alarm or a fire alarm that I don't have to go to, but sometimes it's a fire or an accident. And my job is to direct traffic and control crowds. And, um, and I'm enjoying that. Well, you have most definitely earned your retirement. I think from the point of view of, of wrestling fans like me and people that read the magazine all those years and, and all through the years you were there and, and just loved, loved everything that you put out there. And your magazine, I'm sure you must hear this, but your magazine was responsible for really making so many people fans and, and deepening their experience of being wrestling fans, just adding like another dimension to it to being a wrestling fan, especially, you know, before the internet, you know, that's the, the thing we always talk about. Right. I mean, like, that's what we had those magazines. That was our internet. So, so thank you on behalf of all wrestling fans whom I all speak for, I speak for all of them in this moment. Um, thank you, Stu Sachs for that. Well, it was a pleasure being with you, Brian. Anytime you want to talk on or off the podcast, just give me a holler. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to do it again. I'll, I'll have to, we'll have to do like a reprise because there's so many other things that I definitely will have to t- ask. Get, get, get me, Bill and Craig together in the same room and you'll have yourself a great podcast. Oh man. And then I'd also have to get a premium zoom subscription. If I'm going to have, <laughs> <So> I'll, <laughs> I'll think about it. Let's see how this whole podcast thing goes. And I'll think good luck All to right. you. All right. Thank you, Stu. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. There you have it, folks. That was the legendary. Stu Sachs, the former editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, our first special guest, our very first conversation here on Shut Up and Wrestle. Um, I was very excited to do that, and I was very excited to share it with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Stu. And I certainly hope you're going to keep listening because we have some future conversations already planned and uh, ready to go in the weeks to come talking about people like the Blue Meanie of ECW, whom you may have heard of, uh, my longtime colleague from WWE Magazine and other places, Keith Elliott Greenberg, is going to be talking with me. Um, the Dean, the Dean of Detroit Wrestling, Mr. Dave Brzezinski, a.k.a. Super Mouth Dave Drayson, among uh, many other peoples, uh, peoples <laughs> in the weeks to come. So I hope that you will be listening, and, and I thank you. And if you want to find me on social media, of course, you can get me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find me there. Um, There's links to my website there as well. Also on Facebook, you might want to check out Pro Wrestling FAQ, which is where you'll find a lot of the wrestling updates that I can that I usually do. You can find that there. Um, As I said before, you can find me in the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. 
getpwi.com. You can buy it there. You can find me in the pages of Inside the Ropes magazine. InsideTheRopesMagazine.com is where you can get that. And uh, I am also the co-host of the PWI podcast, as if I'm not busy enough. Uh, you might want to check that out with the great Al Castle. I co-host the PWI podcast. So uh, once again, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that you can lead a horse to water, but a pencil must be led. So long, wrestling fans. I wake up in the morning, I gotta hurt somebody. Yeah.